Welcome to Red Enlightenment, a podcast on socialism, science, and spirituality. In this seventh episode, we are looking at embodiment, the aspect of spirituality through which we feel and express the unseen. Whilst including traditionally religious practices, we also move into more secular forms, both everyday and countercultural, examining how each can contribute to what Mark Fisher called psychedelic consciousness raising. I hope you enjoy the episode. I have always been quietly spiritual. Growing up, religion was difficult to avoid. My mum's Catholic ornaments scattered around the house, sitting on the pews of countless dusty, empty churches, listening to my dad as he repaired their organs, playing the piano at Christmas, O little town of Bethlehem, away in a manger, silent night. The nativity scene under the tree. At school, reverently reading the children's Bible, feeling my connection to a magical past. Sitting in assemblies, singing hymns with back straight and falsetto soaring over the other bored, slouching bodies around me. I would apologise silently to God for my impure thoughts. And then I grew away from it. Hymns turned to pop songs, Bibles turned to novels, thoughts of God turned to thoughts of the atom, psychological submission turned to rebellion. Jesus stopped being real at about the same time as Santa. I welcomed it at the time. It felt like maturity, a release from authority and fantasy. Yet I never lost the yearning for something. A greater purpose, a feeling of wonder. I felt snatches of it from time to time, but always fleeting, in a song, a film, or a moment of love. So I buried myself in rapturous, ethereal music, in quiet, contemplative arthouse cinema, in romantic obsessions. In hindsight, I was longing for a secular divinity. Even now I fill my time attending immersive art exhibitions, turning my memories into poetry and photographing the unusual textures and colours I come across. In all of these there is a searching for something beyond the immediacy of my ordinary senses. Many of these practices that took the place of religion in my life, visual art, music, literature, could be categorised as aesthetic. In its common usage, aesthetic is taken as a shorthand for the overall look or feel of a thing. A soft, cutesy aesthetic, a dark, foreboding aesthetic, a retro-utopian aesthetic, and so on. This tends to place the emphasis on the object itself. What I have previously stressed, however, is that meaning, including the perception of some unified aesthetic, is generated within the body of the perceiver. It may be that separate bodies, like you and I, perceive an object similarly, but this is due not only to us focusing on the same real object, but to our meaning-making apparatuses being relatively synchronised. Both of us being human, we are equipped with similar starting conditions, and with similar enough cultural backgrounds, we will tend to read our surroundings in similar, though never identical, ways. Aesthetics is then not just the philosophy or science of art, but of sense perception. This is the interpretation stressed by Immanuel Kant, 
in opposition to the growing understanding in his own time of aesthetics as the rules of good taste. The perceptual notion of aesthetics is signposted in its etymological opposite, the word anaesthetic, the loss of feeling and perception. We can therefore see aesthetics as incorporating far more than what is traditionally thought of as art to encompass the qualitative aspect of all experience. As discussed in previous episodes, our sensory relation to the world involves distinct layers of cognitive function. On the core affective level, we receive a stimulus which perturbs internal structures and produces an evaluative reflex, such as a movement towards or away from the stimulus. Our hand jumps away from the hot pan before we have any realisation as to what has happened. There is no need for feeling as we understand it, merely an evolved mechanical response. On the next level of felt awareness, we begin to sense our own bodies. We feel pleasure and displeasure, and these are tied into extended moods rather than just momentary reactions. We begin to predict future bodily states, giving us the ability to decide how to act to achieve an idealised state. And then on another level, we are able to control our impulses. We can shape our cognitive dynamics to form abstract reasoning, planning and understanding complex symbolic systems. We can stand back and observe these other processes, making decisions that are contrary to the direction they drive us in. The experience of art, the reflection on and enjoyment of aesthetics in itself, emerges from the interplay of these functions. In a cinema, an art gallery, or sat on a cosy chair at home, we find ourselves in surroundings which we learn to read as safe. Our relatively automatic reflexes of fear, sadness, or sexual attraction can be explored in a way divorced from the wider narratives of our lives and from the danger and irreversibility of real-life choice. Our frames of categorization and our control of impulses prevents us from fleeing or fighting, and yet we are able to experience a taste of being participants, as though the rotting fruit in the photo were a threat to our health, or the knife-wielding murderer on the page were in the next room. Rather than being led by reflex, we are able to focus in on ourselves, even actively enjoying a feeling like fear, because our wider symbolic understanding gives us the confidence that this is an art gallery or a cinema, that the immediate future is likely to be safe. We are able to communicate that experience to others and create collective ritual behaviours around art objects. Aesthetics is therefore not limited to the appreciation of beauty, as it is typically understood. The beautiful is not merely an image which draws us towards it, but which we experience as a kind of perfection, a close match between a cognitive exemplar and a real example. The notion that beauty is in the eye of the beholder rings true. It is not some transcendent notion of perfect order within the object, but a perfect order between subjective expectation and objective presentation. In contrast, much of the power of contemporary art forms arises from the subversion of this resolved perfection. Rather than the neat, consonant harmony of beauty, there is the dissonance of the sublime. In Mark Fisher's Acid Communism introduction, he turns to Foucault in theorising the break from capitalist consciousness, 
aside from the process of writing for the escape of identity, quote, Another route was what he called the limit experience, one version of which was his encounter with LSD. The limit experience was paradoxical. It was an experience at and beyond the limits of ordinary experience, an experience of what cannot ordinarily be experienced at all. The limit experience offered a kind of metaphysical hack. The conditions which made ordinary experience possible could now be encountered, transformed and escaped, at least temporarily. Yet, by definition, the entity which underwent this could not be the ordinary subject of experience. It would instead be some anonymous X, a faceless being. End quote. A certain blowing apart of cognitive connections, a dive into the unknown, is a necessary moment in consciousness raising. To approach a limit without ever crossing, confident that you will never cross, is the basis of the most enduring and alluring pleasures. Some make this the distinction between the sexual and the erotic, there being always something in the latter that is withheld. Many limits we can cross, annihilate even, and retain and increase our powers, our sense of what we are capable of. Other limits, such as death, we cannot. The aim is not the destruction of all boundaries, but our conscious control of them, our discarding of them when they become stifling, even the construction of new boundaries which enable us. But not just any limit crossing is appropriate to sustainable consciousness change. A moment of real danger and real fear, such as in a terror attack or a car accident or an unprovoked physical assault, can destroy not only the momentary organisation of the mind, but also one's ongoing expectations of safety, as the body adapts to this newfound realisation that its assurance of absolute safety was always an illusion. There is not merely a confounding of expectations, but an experience which renders our explanatory frames useless. These are traumatising, debilitating events, bringing about thoroughly disempowering transformations. In contrast, to go through those feelings and affects of extreme events, but bounded in a context of perceived safety, is how I would understand the sublime. The sublime is a kind of simultaneous fear and compulsion, where an experience somehow rips apart your ordinary perceptions, opening up the terrifying awareness of the infinite possibility in what you had assumed was predictable and clearly meaningful. There is a tension produced between opposing futures, drawing you towards and away from a stimulus simultaneously. Often the objects or scenes in question are colossal, destructive weather events, enormous mountain ranges, the endlessness of space. But they need not be. Sublime experience can be centred on the spatially minute, in specks of dust shot through with sunlight, as long as one is nonetheless opened up to the non-spatial vastness of, say, time or potentia in self and world. It is in general about the awareness of one's smallness against something incomprehensible. To actually experience one's lack of understanding is of course not the same as merely having a lack of understanding. The latter is not experienced as such, it is a mere absence, whereas the former is felt as an overwhelming fullness, a spilling over, a drowning of the senses. There are many ways that people seek out limit experiences, extreme sports, body modification, sadomasochism, drugs. 
one danger of taking this route is descending into a kind of nihilism, a self-destructive or other-destructive hedonism. Far from expanding our powers to act, this may instead numb us to ordinary life, making these extreme experiences necessary to our everyday enjoyment of life. As adaptive bodies, the constant exposure to extremity makes what was once a trigger for a limit experience instead de-intensified, boring, the limit having shifted. And if limit experiences are our raison d'etre, then the fading of intensity can lead us to seek ever more extreme experiences. We risk becoming stuck into a cycle of craving that takes us away from the development of collective power and social transformation. Whilst accepting that individual extreme experiences can play a role, we need more sustainable methods of consciousness change. Even with this risk of becoming numbed, we can still utilise occasional, deliberate extreme experiences to help smash us out of prior modes of thought. The use of psychedelic drugs for this destruction and reformulation of the self has its benefits and dangers. On the one hand, it is far quicker than a lifetime of meditation. On the other, the experience can become uncontrolled without necessary discipline. Practitioners speak of there being an appropriate set and setting necessary for a good trip. It involves preparing a safe and welcoming environment and fellow travellers, and being in the right emotional space before you begin, rather than simply dropping acid in unfamiliar surroundings with people you distrust whilst already going through a mental crisis. We might think of this as being equivalent to setting the initial conditions prior to a chaotic bifurcation. That is, the experience may require a relinquishing of control, but we can still guide and constrain it through prior design of the starting conditions. The notion of mindset is often pointing simply to a particularly positive attitude and openness, but I would include in this category our prior metaphysical ideas, the overall worldview which will be the space of our exploration, or which may be blown apart. In the same vein as the ecstatic experiences of religious mystics, our worldviews are not merely a means of interpreting an experience after the fact, but actively guide and shape the experience itself. When we talk about consciousness raising or consciousness change, we imply not just minor adjustments, but a radical break. But this does not require that change to be sudden. The false dichotomy of sudden revolution and gradual reform applies to both the scale of social movements and the individual mind. It misunderstands one of the key insights of Engels' dialectical materialism, that gradual quantitative change can lead to sudden qualitative change in the passing of a threshold, a bifurcation point in the language of contemporary system science and chaos theory. Even if we step incrementally into new knowledge and experience, there can come a point when we realise we have entered a new bodily state. And thus the fundamentally different mental states of long-term meditators, reports of which are today given support through comparative brain imaging that highlights significantly altered patterns of neural activation in beginners, intermediates and long-term practitioners. These are changes which occur through gradual practice, but which create qualitative leaps along the way. Slow change can therefore still take us past thresholds which induce a revolutionary leap. The advantage of momentary chaos over gradual change is both the speed of change and the force with which it breaks us from our current path. 
but in that it also risks trauma. Slower changes are more controllable, but can be more easily diverted by outside forces, swallowed up by their surroundings. But in their combination, by utilising both experiences that create sudden smashing of the self with gradual long-term taming of our existing consciousness, we can create more sustainable consciousness change. If we are to annihilate our worldviews in this way, we must also build entirely new interpretive frames to help direct the change. And all of this must take place with an active concern for the body's health. And this combination of smashing, taming, building and healing functions is one that I have used elsewhere to describe the dynamics of social movements. In Shock Doctrine of the Left, these four functions are aimed particularly at how to move beyond the dichotomy of revolution versus reform, rejecting the dogmas of ossified sectarian divisions, and instead looking at the actual processes and effects of people's organising. Here, in contrast, for the moment at least, we are interested in personal cognitive change. For either scale, smashing functions are those that break apart the connections between parts and collapse the whole, which in a dynamic system leads to chaos. Taming functions alter the connections between parts in order to produce more gradual change. Building functions construct entirely new bodies that can take over the holistic functions of smashed bodies and absorb and redirect their chaotic dynamics. And healing functions support the body's core reproductive processes, including in humans our general mental and physical health. It is through the balancing and articulation of these functions, so that they support and amplify one another, that we can enable rapid but sustainable transformation. In connecting the personal and political scales, it is worth engaging with one likely objection to this aestheticization of daily life, as Mark Fisher argued for. Walter Benjamin considered the aestheticization of politics to be central to fascism, whereby politics is turned into an art-like spectacle with, for example, war now glorified as beautiful. The masses are provided emotional expression without any of the transformation of property relations necessary to their liberation. The communist alternative to the aestheticization of politics, Benjamin suggested, is the politicization of aesthetics. First, we have to clarify that this sense of aesthetics being synonymous with art is not the sense I mean it here. Aesthetics is the reflection upon the nature and experience of perception, including in all its everyday applications. There is then no such thing as a non-aesthetic politics, as politics always involves some relation to a population through their senses, whether through speeches or through changes in their built environments. Simply having a name for a political party, having a logo, having recognisable faces, all of these are immediately aesthetic. The mere feeling of belonging to a social group is aesthetic. We cannot afford to reject a concern for aesthetics, therefore, as this is already something that helps to cohere parts of the left. The names of present and historic organisations, like the IWW, the Bolsheviks, its logos, from the hammer and sickle to the anarchist Circle A, the raised fist, the colour red, in earlier times the beret, songs like Solidarity Forever and the Internationale, which keen-eared listeners will have noticed is the theme tune to this podcast. 
all the videos and memes we circulate with quotes and speeches from figures of the past. It is not just the uniforms, military parades, and socialist realist art of former communist states, but also black bloc outfits and riot porn, brutalist architecture, depictions of historical events like Orgreave and the Miners' Strike, the Peterloo Massacre, the Haymarket Martyrs, and the Paris Commune. All of these are aesthetic and vital to the production of an imagined socialist community. One might be understandably wary of the aesthetics of the face in leaders like Stalin and Mao, and the cult-like behaviour which has at times arisen around them. But this spectacular, unidirectional aesthetic relation is different to the multidirectional, immanent and productive approach to aesthetics that I am calling for. Any critique must therefore be focused on the particular mode of aesthetic, what the shape of this aesthetic relation produces in a population. To aestheticize in the sense I am putting forward would not necessarily mean turning something into a passive spectacle, a means of providing emotional fulfillment without transformation. This aestheticization values transformation, and when articulated with the rest of the account I have laid out, it values transformation in the direction of building greater relational autonomy of individuals and social groups, the liberation from suffering and oppression, and global ecological resilience. To aestheticize in this sense would not mean to distract from transformative process, but to be engaged more fully in one's activity. If to do this is to depict the world as a painting, it is not one that we are passively enjoying in a gallery for a moment of respite. It is one that is still in the process of creation, where we are still holding the paintbrushes and struggling to bring about our vision. It is worth reminding ourselves of the spiritual thrust of this project. The purpose of our embodied practices is the feeling and expression of metaphysics and ethics. To feel and express the unseen potential of the world, its constant blossoming creation, its organic mutual replenishment. To feel and express the unseen feeling of others, the depths of their otherness to feel and seek to resolve sufferings and release oppressions. In traditionally religious contexts, this embodiment of metaphysics and ethics is, at least in part, enacted through ritual. Through ritual, we find a means of visualising or embodying the unseen, allowing us a more direct relation to it. Through the stereotyped movement, speech and narrative flow of the ritual, we connect ourselves with our imagination of past instances of ritual observance, both our own and of all those others who have done likewise, around us and before us. The predictability of the ritual script, even if there is room for unpredictable experience within it, takes us out of the constant searching of attention, the anxiety of survival. The boundaries of likely outcomes are set, the unpredictability of our environment is lowered, the constrained pattern of behaviour creates an imagined space in which we can suspend our ordinary cravings. The repetition can create raw bodily responses, with the controlled breath of meditation and prayer affecting the autonomic nervous system, producing states of calm. Ritual then has immediate bodily effects beyond the representation of the unseen. 
Despite the importance of ritual to religious life, it is notoriously difficult to define, and in anthropology often comes to be applied to just about any social practice. Rather than trying to produce a fixed definition for distinguishing ritual from non-ritual, it may be better to think of, firstly, the relative degrees of patterning in our behaviour, with the more strictly ordered coming to seem more like ritual, and the more spontaneous and unique seeming less. It is never a case of totally ordered or unordered action, as all bodies involve some ordering. Ritual also involves the aspect of shared attention, shared either with a present congregation, or shared over time and space with other believers all attending to the same object or idea in a relatively similar manner. For our purposes, we do not necessarily need to engage in the kind of hyper-constrained scripted practices that are typically called rituals, though we may choose to experiment with these. What is important is that we are nonetheless able to synchronise with others, with our imagined past and future selves, to help cohere bodies and trajectories. It is not enough that we all engage in the same activity. We should aim to cohere the frameworks through which we understand these practices, which these practices embody, and aim to intensify our feelings of that embodiment. But what practices could or should we use? When Michael Brooks spoke of a Machiavellian spirituality, this should not be read as merely strategic, but as strategy related to, as Tony Negri puts it, making do with what you have at your disposal. Whilst I am in favour of experimenting with entirely new practices, more so it is in the appropriation of existing and popular practices that the power lies. One example of a religious practice that is open to such appropriation, and which was specifically of interest to Brooks, is meditation. Through the secular phenomenon of mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR, pioneered by John Kabat-Zinn, meditation has been popularised and, naturally, incorporated into the reproduction of capitalism. Through its use in medical, educational and workplace settings, it has come to be a stand-in for transforming the stressful and alienating conditions of work, placing responsibility on the individual to acclimatise themselves to their exploitation. This is a trend that culminated recently in Amazon's absurd Amazen workplace meditation booths, quickly scrapped after an enormous backlash. Influenced by Buddhist meditation techniques, secular mindfulness has along the way removed most of the metaphysical content that meditation was originally organised around. Rather than mere stress relief, meditation in the various Buddhist traditions has been a method of self-transformation. Liberation from suffering is tied to the realisation that there is no self, no stable phenomena at all, and that all this illusory stability arises from a world of unending flux, multiplicity and interdependence. Buddhist meditative practices are intended as a means of habituating the body over time to perceive these aspects of the self and universe intuitively, for them to be fully integrated into one's being. The passing elements of this metaphysic that MBSR has retained, such as the focus on how moods come and go, only scratch the surface of this worldview. The emptiness of secular mindfulness is also, however, for our purposes, one of its strengths. There is space for us to reintroduce the absent metaphysical content. And this need not be Buddhist, 
contemplative practices already exist beyond Buddhism and Hinduism, such as in various forms in Christian, Islamic and Jewish mysticism, in Taoism and in some indigenous traditions. It therefore provides a broad set of tools, already popular and relatively accessible, that we can reorient towards the process and relational aspects of consciousness and its implications for our social being. Some will cringe at the thought of taking up quasi-religious practices like sitting meditation. Whilst I would encourage those people to take that feeling as a challenge to experiment, experiencing the cringe as generative, my argument is in fact that any practice can be used to embody a metaphysics if approached in the right way. These need not be typically religious or even counter-cultural practices in themselves, something as ordinary and widely experienced as the practice of preparing and sharing a meal can provide a space for this spiritual observance. When one talks of mindfulness of eating, this is simply an intensification of the aesthetic experience of eating. To attend to the shape and texture of the food, the flow of tastes from salty to sweet, the palate of smells, the physical contact with the tongue, teeth, throat and the warmth building in the stomach and so on. Alone this may be little more than a way of deriving greater enjoyment from food, which is no bad thing. But we can frame this instead as an observation of the multiplicity of conscious experience and the bodies we interact with. If we take this opportunity to notice ourselves not as singular but as a storm of various senses of memories and associations, of categorizations, of an attentional focus which foregrounds and backgrounds parts of perception, then suddenly the humble act of eating becomes a forum for phenomenological investigation. Through that investigation, in the attempt to uncover the single I beneath it all, we will inevitably fail, uncovering only this multiplicity. This can be a moment in the longer-term dismantling of the singular, fixed ego. Further, we can notice ourselves as physical organisms, drawing matter from our environments, chewing and digesting and appropriating the food's energy to reproduce our bodies, and each other's bodies through our cooking and gathering for one another. And in its preparation, we can come to see the role of our own work in the creation of new wholes from parts. All of this together can help to break us out of excessively individualistic thought into a more ecological notion of the human. We can also rationally explore the food, imagining its different parts having travelled from various geographical sources, coming together only at this moment of production and consumption. The common religious practice of giving thanks for food at the beginning of a meal can be given a more critical edge, imagining all of the workers and their work that have shaped each element of the meal in their movement from earth to plate. Both the tactile and rational attention to food can provide a way to embody the interconnectedness of all things, not trying to picture this in its totality, but in how that connection is manifested in one unique moment. In more Marxist language, it is helping to embed a de-fetishisation of the commodities before us, bringing the processes of production back into our minds. And in the process of such reflection, we may become aware of gaps in our knowledge, spurring us on towards further self-education. 
to practice this deliberately and regularly can help to make these patterns of thought habitual and occurring beyond the dinner table, so that in our everyday perception we instinctively avoid reifying the bodies around us. To be constantly alive to our own internal flows necessary for our survival, and thus how we are opened up to the outside of our inorganic body, the inescapable dependence on that which is beyond us. With regular practices like eating, we may find a useful space for reflection, but the input remains quite constrained, even accounting for the variety of foods one can eat. Greater scope for developing consciousness can be found in experimenting with entirely unfamiliar experiences, and just as we need not look to religion for ritualistic practice, we need not look to psychedelic neurochemical intervention for the disruption of normality. Contemporary art retains potential as a space for radical consciousness change in spite of its integration into capitalist markets and bourgeois subjectivity. The changes that occurred in art from the mid-19th to the 21st centuries have introduced into art a much greater aspect of indeterminacy than in the past. Where once one may have expected to encounter clear representations of human figures, landscapes or historical events, increasingly there came abstraction, a conceptual focus, strange and jarring combinations of objects, materials taken from outside the crafts of painting and sculpture. As time goes on and conventions are stripped away one by one, time periods become mashed together, shock and ugliness become valued affects and the making strange of the ordinary becomes the raison d'etre of contemporary art. From the delirious blur of impressionists like Claude Monet into the fragmentation of cubists like Pablo Picasso, realistic figures and scenes dissolved. Found objects were introduced to the gallery, starting with Marcel Duchamp's porcelain urinal. Conceptual art, which elevated the idea of an artwork above its physical form, emerged around the 1960s, but reached its peak of popularity in the young British artists of the 1990s, with Damien Hirst submerging a dead tiger shark in formaldehyde, and Tracy Emin exhibiting her own unmade bed. The condition we have now reached is what some have called post-conceptual, where the physical form of the art object is once again being foregrounded, but with the role of concepts always interacting with and disturbing simple interpretation. The utility of such art today is that in this large space of under-determination, there is broad scope in which to insert oneself. To use art as the object of attention is then not simply to investigate that object alone, but allows us to use art as a means of working upon the self. In approaching this kind of artwork, the process-relational aesthetic question is not, is this art, but rather... What does this experience produce? As with the attention to food, we can approach an artwork with our attention on one's body, noticing how the body is affected upon entering the room or encountering the object, the subtle shifts of mood, attention or focus, tension or relaxation. We can attend to the personal associations it may trigger, episodic memories both painful or joyful, strange semantic connections, its imagined tactility. We can rationalise our understanding of the piece's purpose, of its author's personal narrative, the process of the production of the piece, and so on. The difference here with food 
is the far greater variety of potential experiences and far greater scope for unpredictable connections. From wall-mounted paintings and decontextualized objects on plinths, to human performers that span the whole room with physical and vocal movement, to immersive experiences that transform whole buildings into cohesive, colourful playgrounds to explore. The impact is particularly great if, after a period of personal reflection, we are able to share our experience with others, to begin discussing the implications and linking these personal experiences into wider structural questions. How and why did we experience this differently or similarly? What has produced our bodies in this way? Does this reflect anything about the society that shaped us? It can cease to be a merely passive spectacle and become an intervention into the self and a means to explore the world collectively. The kind of transformative art I envisage is therefore not necessarily political art. Explicitly political art can be useful for cohering an existing political community or expressing a previously silenced perspective and so enacting some of the healing and taming interventions into consciousness. Yet communicating a specific political message necessarily forecloses the scope for interpretation and the space for self-insertion. Political art can easily fall into a didactic mode, what Paolo Freire called the banking model of education, where an educator hands fully formed information to the recipient to internalise. For all that increased indeterminacy loses in the communication of specific information, it gains in providing greater space for the audience to enter into the artwork and complete it with part of themselves, in a more participatory mode of meaning-making. The political power of this form of art for consciousness-raising arises from how it can help to habituate a broader perception of process, of relation, and of potentia, that is, of what Mark Fisher called the plasticity of reality, or what I've called the cognition of complexity. But because an underdetermined piece is not necessarily radical, it requires not only a framework for interpretation, but an interpretive community to stabilise and reproduce radical readings and modes of engagement. Just as we saw that different readings can be extracted from the Bible, both reactionary and socialist, stabilised by their respective communities, so too does this apply to various forms of art. In all cases, meaning arises not in the object alone, but in the relation between an object and a meaning-making body, though the object may constrain possible readings to a greater or lesser extent. Different forms may encourage different contours of thought. Process art, which emphasises in various ways how the piece came or continues to come into being, can allow material processes to be brought back into view, from Jackson Pollock's visceral paint splashes to Merle Lederman Ukeles's feminist performances of domestic and civic labour. Relational art creates spaces in which the presence of audience members and their interaction is a vital aspect of the piece, such as the Thai artist Rurikrit Tiravanager, who creates architectural spaces for sharing food, the extremely popular mirror rooms of Yayoi Kasama, or Olafur Eliasson's Weather Project, which bathed the Tate Modern's gigantic turbine hall in artificial sunlight for spectators to bask under. Although such relational aesthetics have been taken as a specific form of art, in the view I've been setting out, all art is relational in its generation of meaning. 
These so-called relational pieces merely foreground this process as part of the artwork itself. The notion of social practice art takes this even further, with non-artists becoming closer to active participants. Documentation of social practice, whether through audio interviews or photographic record, can become part of the fabric of the artwork, blurring the line between art, social activism and sociological study. This approaching of the line between an artwork and doing art work has its own political potential in how it can democratise the creation of art as a generic social practice rather than one of cultural elites being simply a means of working upon the world to redesign and produce new affects. Though so often this political potential remains unrealised, with, as Claire Bishop notes in her book, Artificial Hells, Participatory Art and the Politics of Spectatorship, the impacts being short-term of greater benefit to the lead artist than the wider community, or subsumed into government policy agendas that serve to paper over social inequality rather than tackle their root causes, rather than imagining that any of these forms of art can be socially transformative in isolation, they have to be linked into the roles they can play in wider movement building and consciousness change. The art forms that we consume and create as part of a spiritual process may also be less abstract, more representational, less underdetermined, and still have their own particular power. There may be less space to insert ourselves in strongly narrative art, like most film, literature and gaming, but the presence of the human face and body can provide us with an alternative focus, that of empathy and the infinity of the other. Where we are missing the space for the self, we find a space to occupy another's self, or at least to simulate some aspect of this impossibility. The presence of a real human being lends something to film that other mediums lack. The trigger of empathy for a character, of identification with their struggles, to experience their moments of decision as though they were your own. By allowing us to experience in some simulated way a life beyond our own, Stories help to fill out our networks of symbolic knowledge. Those cognitive schemas through which we process information are refreshed. Concepts spanning anything from what is beauty, how to express love, what is masculinity and femininity, what we should fear, how we value care or heroism, anything at all which is stabilised in our worldviews. They can confirm or challenge our associations, expectations, our patterns of reasoning, in a way that stays with us beyond the period of the film, book or game. The difference between literature and film in the constraints on cognitive dynamics is worth pointing out, to avoid giving the impression of interchangeability. In film, we're presented with an image which has been constructed for us, and broadly speaking, two people will be witnessing the same image. They may interpret the subtextual meanings differently, but you're otherwise quite closely synchronised with other people watching the film, something which can be of benefit for the generation of collective consciousness. That is less the case with literature. You see the same ink on the page, yes, but you are much more responsible for constructing the mental worlds of the narrative internally. The word itself, the written sign or spoken sign, 
is a very specific, clear, actualized thing. But the models we have behind the words are underdetermined and can differ greatly from person to person. From the particular image that is conjured up by a word like bread or house to the whole complex of associations in the word democracy or freedom, each eliciting quite different images in two different minds. The internal material of that literary world is then entirely based on your past experience, giving it wider scope for difference than in a visual narrative film. We might say there is more space in literature, more underdetermined space in its potential. Sitting and reading may not strike one as an embodied practice, and we often tend to think of these forms of art or entertainment as escapes from our bodily lives. But it is always grounded in the past experience of the body, in, for example, how we understand our bodies in physical space, and how we reconstruct physical spaces in the imagination for characters to inhabit. There is a kind of sensory motor simulation of space in the reading of literature. That embodied aspect of reading literature houses some of its political potential. More so than any other medium, literature puts you in the position of someone who is going through some experience, some relation to the world or to themselves that may be unfamiliar to the reader. This is a powerful tool for the development of utopian visions. We do not just read an abstract list of characteristics of some future society, but on some level experience living within it. Again, whilst this could be mere escapism, it could also be a form of training. It can help to produce desire for a new world, a belief in its real possibility, and an embodied knowledge of the processes required to create and maintain it. Kim Stanley Robinson's Red Mars trilogy is a useful example, where, in very close materialist detail, we experience the building of a new society, both in the literal building of physical structures from raw materials to the building of political alliances and organisations, along with the trials of survival through periods of unrest. Allowing someone to live through such events could be an important part in people's enculturation towards how to live in a new world, how to desire it, how to fight for it. It could be a part of how political education can move beyond merely learning to critique capitalism and include the skills of how to live and act in ways that produce its alternative. Although there is an aspect of production and creativity in merely consuming art forms, the active production of new art itself has its own value. One would not necessarily need to represent aspects of metaphysics in a work itself, say, a painting about process or a musical composition about potential and so on. Rather, we could simply view our own creative practice through this lens. Many aspects of creative practice can lead our minds to consider potentials, process, relation and bodies. In constructing an artwork, in bringing elements together into some cohesive body, whether different paints, different musical notes, different clips of film, we have the relation between parts and whole. In witnessing that emergence of a new body over time, as you do work upon these elements, in feeling yourself in coupling with the piece, your idea of it shifting and adapting as you make new changes, uncover alternate paths, your vision spilling onto the canvas, and this in turn transforming your vision of where it should develop next. In our improvisation, whether during a performance or alone during composition, the probing of potentials across a musical space. 
or in how we walk around the subject, taking in different angles, framing them within the shot in alternate ways, taking in all of the complexity of an object. All of this is ripe for helping us to understand the construction of reality itself. The task is to generalise and systematise what creativity already points us towards. We see ourselves in our creativity as conduits of the creativity of the universe, albeit a particularly intense instance of that creativity, being a part of the universe that can reflect back upon itself and its creation, guiding it into new directions. Making art can be particularly empowering for those who have not continued a creative practice beyond childhood. To an extent, it is not that people never learn to be creative, but that they unlearn it. The impulse is crushed, de-emphasised by a culture that makes creativity the province of specialists and supposed geniuses, and not part of the fabric of life that we all contribute to. Adults will find a super-egoic voice telling them not to create, not to express, not to experiment. To notice this repressive voice and to retaliate against it is an act of consciousness raising. Part of the musician's consciousness involves being more inclined to break music down into its parts. You stop seeing music as this single wall of sound and begin thinking of the relation between instruments, between chords and notes, the shifting structure of a piece over its duration. Even without any formal knowledge of music theory, one becomes a more analytical listener. It's very easy, however, to get caught in this space where analysis kills your emotional connection with the music, your appreciation being more focused on its complexity and intricacy. The overall whole can become harder to grasp in its simple immediacy. It is almost as though one then has to try and return to an earlier non-analytical mindset, to temporarily suspend critique and simply feel the music and its effect on the body. The vibration of its lower frequencies through the chest, the warmth of one moment or the next, its overall feel of clarity or murkiness. This return is, however, never the same as the pre-analytical experience, the whole body having adapted in an irreversible fashion. There is an analogy here to the cultivation of ecstatic experiences in general. We must study and actively intervene in the body to habituate certain patterns of feeling and thought and lay the groundwork for future experience. But when a sublime moment presents itself, we must let go and allow it to take its own course. Reflection can come later, along with any necessary re-evaluation of our mental frameworks. But otherwise, all we can do is to set the initial conditions before the chaotic moment begins. To control the sublime is to kill it. Music also provides an example of how we might generalise from the aesthetic into a political perspective. A musical concept sometimes invoked in describing society is that of harmony. Harmony is often presented as a goal, and disharmony, such as the conflict between classes or races, is to be avoided and expunged, regardless of the causes. Harmony in this political sense is taken to mean sameness and passivity, a world where we don't see colour, where there's no excuse for violence, and so on. Yet this notion of disharmony is not a concept found in Western music theory. Any combination of tones produces some sort of harmony. The distinction is how consonant or dissonant that harmony is. Two identical notes produces a unison, 
a perfectly smooth blending into one another, but move one of these notes up by a semitone, which is a single note higher on a piano, or one fret along on a guitar, and suddenly you have a highly dissonant interval. The physical interference of the sound waves can even be felt as a beating of the air inside the eardrum. All different combinations of two notes create a different sonic character, due to the different patterns of interference between the sound waves. By stacking many such intervals on top of one another, and moving between them over time, you produce the overall harmony of a piece, with its shifting centres of gravity, its repetition and surprise, and its pull towards a resolution. To talk of harmony, then, we might think not of a prescription of niceness, positivity, or pacifism. Rather, it could be a descriptive account of a system which traces out its relations of consonance and dissonance, that is, of struggle and cooperation, of positive and negative feeling, of the spaces it creates with absences and densities. This is harmony not as an ethical concept, we must create harmony, but as an aesthetic one. What is the harmony? The question is to examine, to feel, what are the relations, the tensions, the powers and disempowerments? Where do we find bodies pushing in opposite directions? Where is this system producing a repetition of suffering? If some of these aforementioned practices involve the body merely in terms of its memory of motor movement, there is also the ongoing experience of actual movement to consider. Whatever our circumstances, human beings are not remote-controlled. Our movements may be constrained in various ways, but we are broadly speaking autonomous bodies that can at least attempt such movements. Movement is however usually subordinated to some other function. You are using your body in order to do something, even if just to get food from the fridge or to find the toilet. It may be for someone else's purpose, to complete a certain task for them, to help them out in some way. The body can become merely functional, a purely practical means of locomotion. And of course, the necessity of work means we do not choose the direction of so much of our bodily movement. Our autonomy is significantly reduced. This can contribute to a disconnection of the mind from the body, the body simply serving as the conduit for someone else's desire. Dance upends this purely functional role of the body. In dance, movement becomes the purpose itself, the inaction of autonomy its result. One takes control of their body and allows it to feel. You create a space in which you explore some of the potentials of your body and behave in ways circumscribed in most daily life. It is in noticing the disparity between the repressive day and the night out or the festival that some of the political potential of dancing lies. On its own, dancing can easily survive alongside reactionary politics, the dance being a purely individual expression. But with a critical eye, it foregrounds attention, whereby one develops an ideal body state of greater autonomy than one is used to, highlighting and intensifying that felt difference. You're forced to wake up at a certain time, to get on a bus to go to work and be there for many hours, having to maintain an air of rigid formality as you go. At work, your emotions are policed, whether around customers, colleagues or bosses. Your whole outward manner is self-policed through your subjugation to the market and the necessity to not alienate future employers. 
Even if you don't have a job, you're forced to the job centre, forced into expressions of subservience, or else you can't leave the house at all because a lack of money bars you from most outdoor activities. Dancing cannot end that situation or the alienation it produces, but it does create moments that show you what it can feel like to have control over your body, the feeling of an alternate world that could be. It can help to both heal from the pain of unfreedom and build a vision of the new. Dancing is, of course, not just an individual pursuit, but a group activity. In a nightclub with a group of friends embedded within the larger group of the whole crowd. It is not simply that you are there among others, but that over a period of time, all attending to the same rhythm, you become affectively aligned. The beginning can often feel awkward, particularly for a highly repressed white British person like myself, as though you're still carrying your daytime self and forcing it into shapes it's learned to avoid. But as you acclimatise, helped along by adrenaline and other optional stimulants, you push past that initial sense of being out of place and enter into a new space of feeling. Affect spreads between bodies, movements replicate one another, people play off each other in a feedback loop, with your dancing intensifying my dancing, which intensifies yours and others around me in turn, you hit a threshold where suddenly it stops feeling like you're trying to build up to something, and you are then in something, the visceral experience of collective joy. There is never just one threshold, but others to be crossed. Passing from discomfort into comfortable synchronisation, you can later pass into a kind of trance-like consistency, and then into exhaustion, and then, if you're not careful, to death. The passing into near exhaustion can play the part of a limit experience, the dancing felt as a raising of one's old self to the ground, like a ritual cleansing. If the movement of the physical body and its synchronisation in collectives can play the role of an embodied spiritual practice, then this opens up a range of mundane activities, Exercise is one example, with the feeling of reshaping the body over time, expanding its physical potentials, and the generally transformative impacts it has on mental health. The collective use of the body in sporting activities we could likewise include, as unusual as it may feel to connect these to aesthetics and politics. The Marxist C.L.R. James, who we encountered in the first episode for his writing on the Haitian Revolution, also wrote a book about cricket titled Beyond a Boundary, examining not only the political and historical role of the game in the Caribbean, but also its aesthetics. Given the unfamiliarity of this argument and its significance for my own, I would like to quote James at some length. Rebuking art critics who dismiss sport, he says, quote, The aestheticians have scorned to take notice of popular sports and games to their own detriment. The aridity and confusion of which they so mournfully complain will continue until they include organised games and the people who watch them as an integral part of their data. Cricket is an art, not a bastard or a poor relation, but a full member of the community. End quote. He continues, quote, Cricket is first and foremost a dramatic spectacle. It belongs with the theatre, ballet, opera and the dance. In a superficial sense, all games are dramatic. Two men boxing or running a race can exhibit skill, courage, endurance and sharp changes of fortune, can evoke hope and fear. 
that can even harrow the soul with laughter and tears, pity and terror. The state of the city, the nation or the world can invest a sporting event with dramatic intensity such as is reached in few theatres. When the Democrat Joe Lewis fought the Nazi Schmeling, the bout became a focus of approaching world conflict. On the last morning of the 1953 Oval Test, when it was clear that England would win a rubber against Australia after 20 years, the nation stopped work to witness the consummation. End quote. And in this comparison of the aesthetics of drama with that of sports and games, James notes that a quote, major consideration in all dramatic spectacles is the relation between event, or if you prefer contingency, and design, episode and continuity, diversity in unity, the battle and the campaign, the part and the whole, end quote. Although James was elevating cricket in particular above other sports for its dramatic qualities, we can utilise the same approach to perceive any other game, such as football, as an expression of processes, of relations within and between bodies, of differing intensities and valences, of the drawing of a unique path through a space of infinite possibilities. From the moment of kickoff, its initial conditions, a game develops in unpredictable directions, whole new possibilities of play opening up with each move. The future of the match is constrained by its rules, and yet within those bounds it remains radically open. The team is not simply a set of individuals, but is more than the sum of its parts. The different positions of goalkeepers, defenders, midfielders and strikers, each playing a different but vital role in the emergence of an effective team. And the outcome is shaped through a kind of struggle, one side shaping the other's movements on the pitch and vice versa, action coming in waves and falling away again. The co-adaptation of individual and collective bodies as they swarm around one another. The tension that is created as opposing trajectories exert work to bring about their desired end. Crucially, a game like football is embedded in shared national and global practices. As tension builds, or as it releases when a goal is scored, emotions spread throughout the stadium, the country, the globe, everyone watching from their homes and pubs becoming synchronised in their bodily experience across vast distances. Whether or not we could build a successful mass consciousness-raising project through the playing and watching of football is one question, to be answered only through experimentation. But what is important is that we consider any practice, particularly those of such popularity, as potential forums for shaping aesthetic worldviews towards the liberatory. And regardless of how successful this is on the level of individual consciousness change, embedding such popular practices into the left helps to demonstrate that our visions of the future are not opposed to the communal joy already vital to people's lives. Indeed, the goal is for that feeling of freedom and joy to permeate even further into the rest of our living experience. This selection of practices is far from exhaustive, is merely a hint of what might be possible. The idea is to experiment. Mundane and extreme, creative and consumed, individual and collective, all can play a part in the reshaping of consciousness through the embodiment of metaphysics and ethics that I have called spirituality. The next episode will be the conclusion to this series, 
tying together everything we have covered in the previous seven episodes on spirituality, science, socialism, metaphysics, ethics and embodiment. I hope you'll join me. See you there. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash onalifeglug. You can find me on Twitter also at onalifeglug. And if you're interested in my previous work, check out my book, The Shock Doctrine of the Left, which is available from Polity Books. <laughs>